And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who has to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So today we must conclude our series from the book of Acts as we've looked at different conversion stories and today we're looking at a conversion, um, conversion of a whole community. There's 12 or so men that get converted under Paul's preaching. I've called them uh, a, a pre-Christian community. They had been prepared by the Lord to receive the gospel, and when Paul told them about Jesus, they were ready to, uh, to accept him and gladly believed. Uh, they are what uh, Alistair Begg calls almost Christians. They're almost Christians. There were other almost Christians in our passage in the local synagogue, religious people, moral people, Bible people. Some of them believed, and others resisted Paul, so that eventually he had to teach somewhere else. So that's our passage. And um, last week, uh, we looked at a, at a story in the book of Acts where Paul was preaching to a completely secular group of people. So no Bible knowledge, no any kind of framework for understanding Jesus and the resurrection. And I mentioned that it's becoming more and more common to encounter people in our own culture that are completely uh, illiterate biblically. They're not they don't have the same ideas that come from the Bible, so you kind of have to build from the ground up when you share the gospel with them. But I think it's still not very common. It's becoming more common, but I think more likely you will be sharing the gospel with somebody that has some understanding of Scripture, some understanding of God, and maybe even Jesus and the gospel in particular. There's still a lot of Christian influence in history in our culture. I recently listened to an interview with William Taylor, who is the rector at St. Helen's Church in London, a very important church and ministry in the financial district of London. And he shared his impressions of America, and he was struck with just how Christian America seems to him compared to England. He saw churches in every corner. He saw even evangelistic campaigns, people sending out mail and some people responding and coming to church based on those invitations, apparently in England, that is not the case at all. He made, the, the, he made a point of saying that in England, 
the established church really embraced a different kind of theology about 150 years ago. And so since then, uh, the culture has changed so much that there are actually very few people that have any sort of connection to genuine Christianity. Here, most people have at least a connection to someone, someone who understands the gospel, somebody who grew up Christian, somebody who has some Bible knowledge, and I think that is something we need to make use of when we share the gospel. So our passage today deals with that kind of community. There's some basic understanding of Scripture, there's same kind of morality, same kind of worldview, and Paul preaches the gospel to them, and we see them respond. So what can we learn about sharing the gospel with almost Christians? Well, I'd like to suggest that we can learn four things from our passage. Number one, the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Number two, the centrality of Jesus. Number three, the importance of teaching. And number four, the inevitability of conflict. Necessity of the Spirit, centrality of Christ, importance of teaching, and inevitability of conflict. All right. When Paul comes to Ephesus, he finds a group of people, he initially thinks they're disciples. He calls them disciples, he thinks they're Christians. But very quickly, he realizes that something is missing, something isn't right. So he asks in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, isn't that an interesting first question to determine whether someone is a Christian? I, that's not the first question I ask. That's the first question Paul asks. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why is Paul asking about the Holy Spirit first? Well, because genuine Christianity is a matter of spiritual transformation. Christianity is not primarily about moral transformation or theological transformation or social transformation. These changes are rooted in a spiritual renewal caused by God himself, namely the Holy Spirit. So to ask someone if they have received the Holy Spirit is to ask them if they are truly a Christian. Same thing. Because Christianity isn't primarily about a new creed or a new community or a new set of priorities. It is about a new life. That's what Christianity is. It's about a new life. In John 3, if you remember that, that passage, Jesus talks to Nicodemus, who's a moral man, a wise, smart, educated man, religious man, and he comes to him late in the evening to talk to Jesus to have his questions answered, and Jesus tells him, this is John 3, and verse 3, Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is puzzled by that. He's confused by that. So Jesus explains, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. For a person to be connected with God, to be part of his kingdom now and in eternity, they must experience a spiritual transformation. So radical that Bible writers, Jesus himself, likens it to a second birth. A new life, a new nature, a new heart must be given to us, must be implanted in us by God. And that is what the Spirit of God does to any true Christian. 
Any truly converted person, any genuine Christian, has been transformed and is being transformed from within by the Spirit of God. So Paul's question to these Ephesian men can be paraphrased like this. Is there any spiritual life in you? That's what he's asking. Because if there is no Spirit of God here, if the Spirit of God is not involved, there's no spiritual life. There's no true Christianity. They answer in verse 2, no. He says, have you received the Spirit when you believed? He says, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, they probably heard about the Holy Spirit. If they read the Old Testament, if they listened to the preaching of John the Baptist, they probably knew about the Holy Spirit. But what they're saying is that we, we haven't even learned, we don't know that the Spirit has come, that the Spirit is active, that the Spirit is working in people. They had no experience of the Spirit, and they did not even know that they could have such an experience. Now, some professing Christians today live as if they have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. They may be going to church, they may be reading their Bibles, they may be serving others, they may be doing lots of other Christian things, but they are almost Christians because all their activities are based in their own efforts and not in the new life that is flowing from within their new hearts. When the Ephesian men receive the Spirit in verse 6, they begin speaking in different languages and prophesying. This is a miraculous thing that happened several times in the book of Acts at Pentecost, when the gospel goes to Samaria, when the gospel comes to the Gentiles, Cornelius' house, we see that repeated, those phenomena are repeated to authenticate the gospel, to say, this is really real. God's Spirit is really here. You can see it. You can see the results of it. Now, that doesn't happen to most Christians when they get converted. But this is what happens to all Christians. We're all changed by the Holy Spirit into new kinds of people. And we begin living our lives out of new natures given to us by God himself. It's no longer our efforts at moral reformation or religious performance, but the life of God working in us, flowing through us, flowing from us. That, that's Christianity. It's a new life. Martin Lloyd-Jones had this diagnostic question that he asked people when he wanted to find out if if they are Christians, he would simply ask them, are you a Christian? And he would often hear, I am trying. I'm trying to be a Christian. And that's when he knew that something is missing in that person's understanding of what Christianity is. Because if you're trying to be a Christian, you're missing the whole dimension of a spiritual life, spiritual new life that God gives you as a gift. It's, a, it's grace. God gives it to you. So no true Christian is trying to be a Christian. We simply are because we've been born again. We've been changed. No child is trying to be a child. They simply are a child, and that's what Christians are. So I want to ask you, have you been changed by the Spirit of God? Or are you an almost Christian? 
Are you living in your own strength? Or is the Spirit of God working in you? Have you been born again? Paul says in Romans 8, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's why Paul asked him, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Because those are, those are the same, that's the same event. When you believe, when you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. When you have the Spirit, you belong to Christ. Because you cannot belong to Him unless you are changed, transformed from within by God Himself. Now this brings us to our second point, the centrality of Christ. Now look at Paul's next question in verse 3. So he asked them about the Holy Spirit, and then he asked them, into what then were you baptized? And they reply, into John's baptism. Since they said they did not experience the Holy Spirit, Paul asks, so what teaching are you following? What, what are, what are you, how are you living? What, what do you believe? And they identify themselves as the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, we don't know. We don't have the backstory. We don't know how they got connected with John the Baptist. Maybe they were in Palestine and they moved to Ephesus. Maybe they visited Palestine at some point. I don't know. But at some point, they got in contact with John the Baptist. They heard his preaching. They were baptized by him, and they became his disciples. And that's how they've been living for many years now. They're living according to the teachings they received from John the Baptist. Look at verse 4. Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after them, that is, Jesus Paul says, John's ministry was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. And now Jesus has come. Once they hear about Jesus, they're already prepared, they've repented, they've prepared themselves to accept the Messiah, and Paul simply tells them that Jesus is here. And when Paul tells them that, and I think he tells them more than that, I think he tells them about Jesus' perfect life and his death, his resurrection, they get baptized into the name Jesus of Jesus, baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now the point is not that there's a specific baptismal formula that needs to be applied here. Now some people, some cults, take this passage to mean that to be truly a Christian, to be truly baptized, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus, not in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as Jesus commands us in Matthew 28, but specifically in the name of Jesus. This is not what this passage is about. This passage is about people transitioning from being a disciple of John the Baptist to being a disciple of Jesus. And so baptism now, this new baptism, remember they were baptized by John into his teaching. Now they're baptized by Paul into Jesus' teaching. What they're doing is, is they're, they're recentering their lives on something else. They've been centered on the teaching of John the Baptist, on his baptism, on, on the repentance of sin, on the expectation of someone who will come to save them. Now they're recentering their lives on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And they declare their exclusive allegiance to Jesus as Lord. In other words, they become followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. They're no longer John's disciples. They are now Christ's disciples. They were prepared by John's ministry, but now they have come to the one John was preaching about. And that is when the Spirit comes. When they believe, when they connect to Jesus, the Spirit comes and their faith in Jesus is interconnected with the work of the Spirit. The Spirit brings new life through the work of Jesus on the cross 
and in the empty tomb. Now, I need to be more explicit here. Jesus came to change our spiritual state from death to life. When he lived, Jesus fulfilled all God's requirements, all God's expectations on humanity according to his law, and he did it in our place instead of us. When he died, he bore the punishment for all our sins in our place. When he rose again, he defeated all our enemies, the world, death, the devil, sin, guilt, and he did it all for us. And because Jesus did all of that, he did it. Because he did all of that on our behalf, in our place, we can be forgiven. We can be reconciled to God. We can be included into his kingdom. We can be adopted into his family. So the Spirit takes what Jesus did, that objective work of Christ, the cross, the resurrection, the the defeat of all evil, he takes that and then he applies it very specifically to our hearts. And he makes us like Jesus. Positionally, in God's eyes, we have Jesus' righteousness. And then practically, he makes us more and more like Jesus in our very nature. So to be a Christian is to have the very center of your life replaced by the Holy Spirit. Where there was worship of self, now there is Jesus. Where there was my righteousness, now there is Jesus. When there was guilt and shame, there is Jesus now. The Holy Spirit puts Jesus in that place. Where there was condemnation and fear, now there is Jesus. Where there was disobedience and rebellion against God, now there is Jesus. That's Christianity. You see, it's that work of the Spirit. When the Spirit takes what Jesus did and he, He places that right at the center of my heart and He changes me, And now whatever was there before is replaced. It's it's something else is put in its place. And I'm different because the center of my being has now changed. Martin Luther said, live as if Christ died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back again tomorrow. Luther wants us to bring the gospel right into the everyday of our lives because our lives are to be centered on that. That's supposed to be our life. Christ is our life. So you live your life as if the resurrection is today. It just happened this morning. It's so real to me that he died yesterday and the effects of his death are on me now. And he's coming back tomorrow and I'm expecting that. I'm waiting for that. That is Christianity. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, to center your life on Him. So we do what He does. We feel what He feels. We think what He thinks. We trust Him alone for everything. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, I'm working hard to define genuine biblical Christianity because there are many almost Christians, maybe even some here today, The almost Christian seems to be doing Christian things and saying Christian words, 
but there's no Christian life in them. Because Jesus is not at the center and the Holy Spirit hasn't applied the gospel to them. Michael Horton wrote a book about 12, 13 years ago where he diagnosed parts of evangelical Christianity in America as Christless Christianity. Christless Christianity. It's a, it's a sobering assessment. Does it describe your religious experience? Is Christ at the center? Or do you live like the Ephesian men before they met Paul, as if Jesus has not come yet? Now, we've already seen the importance of teaching in Paul's interactions with the 12 disciples of John. He teaches them. He reveals truth to them. He helps them understand what Jesus means, what the gospel is. helps them to believe, baptizes them based on that teaching. But that was not incidental to Paul's ministry. Look at what he does next, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. For three months, Paul is teaching the Bible. He's teaching the Bible to the people that need to be taught. And when he had to leave the synagogue because of the opposition from some people there, Paul taught daily in the hall of Tyrannus for two years. That's in verses 9 and 10. Paul was committed to teaching, day by day, teaching, just, just expositing Scripture. Now, we all need to be taught. I need to be taught. A large part of the Christian life is daily learning from the Bible. The worshipers at the synagogue knew some things about God from the Old Testament, but they needed more instruction to get a fuller picture of the kingdom of God, especially as it related to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, the king of that kingdom. The 12 men in Ephesus knew some things about sin and judgment, but they needed more teaching about what Jesus did about that. And of course, all the people in Asia Minor who knew almost nothing about God needed to be taught, and so Paul taught them every day. I'd like to encourage us, all of us, to commit to the learning of the whole Bible. Now, I know my job is to teach, and it sounds like I'm just telling you to listen to me, right? But I am in this job because I am convinced that teaching is really important. Important enough for me to commit my life to it. And I hope for you as well to organize your life around the gospel and the teaching of the gospel and the teaching of the whole Bible. One of the most important decisions you can make as a Christian is to place yourself under the regular teaching of the Bible. On Sundays at church, Sunday sermon, Sunday school, at small groups, Bible studies, in your personal daily reading of the Bible, we need to be shaped by the Bible. The Bible has to, has to define how we see the world. That's the centrality of Jesus. That's how the Spirit of God works. It's all connected. All these pieces are part of the Christian life. And we need to be shaped by the whole Bible, not just bits and pieces of the Bible that you like or the ones that resonate with you. That's not enough. We need the whole Bible. I'm reading a book by Andy Crouch, and he writes about a functional Bible within the Bible, meaning that all of us have a canon within the canon. There's parts of the Bible we like, parts of the Bible we know better, and we sort of organize our theology and our worldview and our practice around those parts. 
but there are parts that are missing. We neglect to learn some other parts, maybe parts that we don't naturally gravitate to. We need to do that. We need to be shaped by the whole Bible. And as new ideological threats to the gospel arise, the lack of biblical instruction in the church is often exposed. In fact, you can see, based on the church's teaching, how people are going to react to particular social movements. And we have seen it in the last couple of years, haven't we? Turning the other cheek is sometimes dismissed as liberal propaganda. Male leadership in the church and in the home is dismissed as toxic masculinity and oppressive patriarchy. Church discipline is sometimes dismissed as spiritual abuse. Concern for justice is dismissed as following the media's narrative. We are to be shaped by the whole Bible. The whole Bible. And we are to look at those movements, those ideas, things happening around us, things happening in us, through the lens of the whole Bible. The Bible needs to cover it. and needs to help us understand how to interpret. Those are complicated things. But the Bible can teach us, not just parts of the Bible, but the whole Bible. You need the whole Bible. Now, you will notice that in our church, when we preach from the New Testament, call to worship is going to be from the Old Testament. Why? I don't want you to forget there are two Testaments. I want you to remember the Bible has two parts to it, not just one. I want you to think about the other books of the Bible. I want us to be, me included, I want us all to be shaped by the whole Bible, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament history, the prophets, the poetry of the Bible the Gospels and Acts, Paul's letters, other epistles, and Revelation. Now, let me tell you a story. I think I've, I may have shared this before at some point. But I knew a man who was new to my church when I served in Chicago. He came, a young professional, wanting to be active in the church, and said, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to teach a Sunday school class on apologetics. And I said, okay, that's a need for sure. You know, show me your materials and we can work through it and maybe that will be a really great way for you to be involved. So he brought a curriculum that, that he developed uh, for me to look over and one of the topics was the Christian view of natural disasters. And he made a point in his materials of saying that God was not responsible for hurricanes and famines, that they were happening quite apart from God's intentions, almost in spite of his will. That puzzled me because the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, that he is in control of everything that happens to us, that even natural disasters, as we call them, are still within his will. It's still within his providence. It doesn't mean a tornado is always a sign of his wrath. It could mean that. He can have any number of purposes behind uh, a thing like a tornado. So I asked the man, how he came to this conclusion and how he reconciled it was with the teachings specifically in the prophets. And it became apparent very quickly that he was simply not familiar with the Old Testament prophets. He, didn't, he did not seem to know Isaiah 45, 7, where God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Or Amos 3, verse 6, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? 
How can we defend the faith if we don't even know what the Bible teaches? I mean, it was, it was, it was a really interesting experience for me because what I saw is a, a, a genuine desire to, to, to explain the gospel. He was well-intentioned, and he himself became a believer under someone's apologetic teaching, and he saw that arguments for Christ were real, and he embraced it, and he had real faith. And yet, for whatever reason, he was not well taught, and he only knew parts of the Bible, and so he constructed a worldview that he wanted to defend based on just parts of the Bible, but not the whole of the Bible. And there were glaring omissions in his worldview. That doesn't happen if you read the Bible through. It doesn't happen when you listen to the Bible exposited verse by verse. That really helps. And so I am encouraging all of us to be shaped by the whole Bible and to put ourselves under biblical teaching, consistent verse by verse, day by day kind of teaching, personally, individually, and communally. So finally, let's look at our last point. The point that conflict and tension is inevitable when the gospel is taught and received. Now, I've titled this sermon, The Gospel in a Pre-Christian Community, and I've I've borrowed that term from uh, the church growth movement. That's a term that's often used in churches that believe that we need to be more friendly, we need to be more open, we need to take down barriers so that other people can come in and hear the gospel. And there's truth in that understanding that many people wouldn't come to church because of the unnecessary barriers we ourselves have set up. There's truth in that. That some of our friends and neighbors, um, the barriers that they have between them and the church are, are, are not, they're not necessary and we need to remove them. However, no matter how nice we are as Christians and how great our music is and how relevant we may be, the gospel will still be rejected by many. Now look at verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he, Paul, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So three months, the best mind Christianity has produced, possibly the best speaker Christianity has produced, is talking to people who already believe the Bible, they already obey in the Bible, they gather regularly for worship, he gets together with them and he teaches the Bible to them, and eventually after three months, they know what he's teaching, they reject him. So he has to go somewhere else, and part of that community leaves with him, it's divided, and part of the community stays in their unbelief. He was kicked out of the synagogue because some refused to believe and they begin opposing the gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed, there is a confrontation that happens, a confrontation between a sinful heart and the gracious Savior. Some hearts surrender to Jesus, and they put him at the center of their lives and are transformed by the Holy Spirit, but others reject Jesus and remain self-centered. Now, that happens in religious circles and it happens in secular circles because it is a matter of the heart. Faith, in the Christian understanding of faith, is surrendering to Jesus. 
It requires humility. It requires repentance. And many refuse to accept the rule of another king, even the one who died and rose for them. So I leave you with this. Do you feel the tension between the gospel and your sinful heart? Are you almost a Christian? Are you kind of a Christian? Or have you surrendered to Jesus? Have you been changed by His Spirit? Have you come under His teaching? Or will you remain stubborn and persist in your unbelief?